Wah, 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 wah. No Craig and Patty today. Stand up, Craig and Patty. Craig, you know, you really didn't have to go all the way to Arkansas to get that haircut, you know. They got some people who will do it here. Um, if you're following the prayer chain, then you are following along with these guys. And you know that Craig set some kind of a new Olympic record for stem cell harvesting in one shot, which we thank God that you guys were able to come home early because of that. Uh, but we are many here who are praying for you guys as you walk through this process. But I think many of us are benefiting by watching how you walk through this process. It has been amazing to see your loyalty to God when things have been difficult and filled, filled with questions as to you know, why am I walking through this, but I don't ever hear that from you. So guys, thank you for leading us into greater faith, into a greater picture of what matters in light of eternity and of where we put our hope all the time. So we're so grateful to have you guys back in town for a little bit. And then you go back to Arkansas two weeks. Okay. Well, please continue to keep Craig and Patty in your prayers. All right. Well, this morning we are continuing what we began last week was to talk about the passion of the shepherd and the purpose of the flock. And to give you a little bit of a frame of reference, that word passion, you know, it's a good word because it has heat, it has intensity to it. It's not just interest. There's urgency. Uh, there's uh, earnest pursuit involved in the shepherd having this passion. We saw that in John 21 where Jesus not only restores Peter, but, but he commissions him and he sends him into something that's a passion for God to care for his flock. We looked into Ezekiel and the passion for God to say, I will be a shepherd to my people. I will seek the lost. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will do this. There's an intentionality in God to do this. But that doesn't mean it is done without disruption. Even God saying, I will be is going to be met with a reality all throughout Scripture that, that there, there isn't always perfect health in the flock. There's seasons of decline and difficulty. You know, the spiritual dimensions of our life have some, always have some similarities to the physical realms of our life. And there's, there's aspects to the physical universe you and I live in that makes everything sort of slow down makes everything decline in some ways. You know, if you're from the 60s, the, you know, the philosophy of what goes up 
Bum, 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 spinning wheel. Yes, sir. Um, some of y'all are having a flashback right now. You're at a concert and you're stoned out of your minds. But anyway, um, you know, gravity pulls on everything in this world, right? So what goes up is going to get pulled down. Uh, if you're into physics, you know that even though you set something in motion, there's, there's resistance in the world, whether it's wind resistance, friction from the ground. Eventually, that's going to decline in speed. And so this is true in the spiritual realm as well. Put in your outline there. No matter how well the church is doing, it is constantly being pulled on by contrary forces. No matter how well it's doing, and there are moments where we can go back and visit in church history where the church was doing quite well. Had some great moments, followed by declining moments. One of the greatest moments on the shores of America was what was called the Great Awakening, a spiritual visitation from God that happened in the 1700s. Now walk with me through a little bit of history here. Justo Gonzalez says, in 1734... The first signs of the Great Awakening appeared in Northampton, Massachusetts. The pastor there was Jonathan Edwards, a staunch Calvinist who had been trained at Yale and was convinced of the need for a personal experience of conversion. Now, he put a huge amount of emphasis on that. I, I don't think that's lacking the need for all of us to always be realizing. Because back, back in his day, Christianity would have been common. It would have been part of the fabric of society. Everybody was. And so when everybody is, sometimes that's a real problem. Sometimes we've diminished the fact that each one of us needs to come to a personal encounter with God that is a saving encounter. He had been preaching in Northampton for several years with average results. When his preaching began evoking a response, that surprised him. In that year of 1734, people began responding to his sermons, some with emotional outbursts, but many with a remarkable change in their lives and with increased attention to their devotional lives. And he catalogs all kinds of changes that were taking place in people's lives. And this spilled over into, I believe, 17 counties uh, within the area there that began to experience revival. He records some thoughts in his own works there, the next quote here, in the former part of this great work of God amongst us, till it got to its height, we seemed to be wonderfully smiled upon and blessed in all respects. Satan seemed to be unusually restrained. Persons that before had been involved in melancholy or, or kind of depressive uh, symptoms seemed to be, as it were, waked up out of it. And those that had been entangled with extraordinary temptations seemed wonderfully to be set at liberty. And not only so, but it was the most remarkable time of health that ever I knew since I have been in the town. Now, Owen Strawn and Doug Sweeney in their book, Jonathan Edwards, on true Christianity, comment and say this. This was Jonathan Edwards' assessment of his town's spiritual health in 1735. Just a little while after this happy state, however, a period of decline and despair struck the community. In the latter part of May, Edwards wrote, it began to be very sensible that the Spirit of God was gradually withdrawing from us. 
And after this time, Satan seemed to be more let loose and raged in a dreadful manner. The great promise of the 1735 revival waned as the town gradually settled into a spiritual malaise. Now, if you visit any revival, any move of God in history, what goes up ends up coming down. Because we, we live in a place where there is a declining, pulling dimension that is in our lives. Now, what I want us to learn a little bit today, and actually what they do in this book that they've written, is to observe how it was that Jonathan Edwards ministered into what became nominal Christianity. What was his angle? What was he trying to provoke? How did he observe nominal Christianity? And for us to remember, we're all capable of nominal Christianity. We're capable of being a nominal church because there's this downward pull, this gravitational pull of the fall and sin's effect that will be affecting our lives and how we walk together. Now, just, just a question for your own consideration. Are you, are you mindful of periods of decline? Do you, do you notice when that's going on spiritually in your life? That you are in a, in a decline. You are not where you were six months ago. You are not where you were a year ago. And, and where you are now represents a decline from where you once were. Right? As these guys say in their book, the town gradually settled into a spiritual malaise. There'd be a few of us who live lives that sort of a firework-ish, you know, we come to a point where we're just going to blow everything up, right? We've been doing okay, and we're going to blow it all up now. We're going to make a huge decision and just blow the whole thing up, right? You know who you are. There's only a few, but you know who you are. Most tend to just sort of gradually settle into a condition. So the, the church tends to gradually become something different than what the passion of the shepherd had intended for it to be. And when it gradually becomes that, it's a little harder to notice. And it's a little harder to be alarmed about as well. But it does cause us to raise some questions here. In their book, Strawn and Sweeney, they say, what is a true Christian? What is the church? Though these are fundamental questions, they often go unanswered in our current evangelical context. Oftentimes, we focus little on what actually makes a Christian a Christian and what makes a church a church. This has fed an age-old problem, nominal Christianity, or Christianity that exists in name only. And so what is a Christian? And, and for this series that we're doing right now, what is a church? Now, Maybe that's not a question that you've asked lately. You know, what is a church? What's the church supposed to be? I don't know. Maybe you don't wake up with that question on your mind. But, but that would be telling of something that I think we've learned and absorbed. You know, how motivated are we to even study this issue? Does this rise to a level of importance for us? Does, I mean, does it really matter in the scope of all that you're dealing with as individuals, in the places that you are in your life, 
struggles that you're having, things that are affecting you, what you aim at, does the topic of the church and what the church is supposed to be really, really rise to the top of topics for you? Well, it raises a question of what, what motivates you? What, what's in you that I could hook this morning to get you interested? Because this is, this is a topic that matters in a huge way to God. I, w- I was having a conversation the other day with uh, one of the guys who's been helping with my physical therapy. Young guy, uh, part of the torture patrol. Um, he, he was brought in to do the heavy lifting kind of stuff. But uh, he, was, he was telling me a little bit about just some things that he was reading through. And I, and I found it very interesting. He was a you know, 25-year-old guy who's actually looking to aim his life at something. Right? So he's telling me some of the books he's, he's reading. He actually reads the Bible sometimes. One of the books that he was reading is a, a, a management book that I'd heard some good things about, a book called uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. And so I knew a little bit about the book, so I started asking him a few questions about it and how it was affecting him. But one of the things that captured me was, because he was listening to motivational speakers as well, and I asked him, well, what are you trying to be motivated to be? What do, you, what do you call good? Good to great. What's, what's good to you? And, you know, we tossed around a few thoughts, talked for a moment, uh, and, and came back to this premise, that good has to do with wherever you locate the center of the universe. And there's really only two addresses for the center of the universe. There's either God or there's you. There aren't any other addresses. There's either God, and therefore, good gets determined by how everything orients itself around God. If it's correctly oriented around God, well, then it's good. And if it's not, then it's not good. But if you move the center to yourself, well, now you have a different definition for good, too. Because good now is defined by how everything orients itself around me. So is this relationship good? Well, it depends. How is it oriented around me? Is that decision good? Well, it depends. How is it oriented around me? What does it do for me? Well, see, there's, there's something in God that God says certain things are good because they bring this orientation of life around him. Now, if you and I aren't careful, we live in a world that wants us to locate the center right here all the time. And when that happens, I can guarantee you the church will fall off your list of important issues to study and have convictions about. But if God is the center and how things are oriented around him are what's critical and important, well, then we find quickly in God, God has a passion for this subject. Peter, do you love me? Shepherd my sheep. The intensity of God in Ezekiel, I will shepherd my people. There's a passion in God for this topic. And if God's at the center of who we're seeking to be, then our motivation is about him, and therefore the church has to be pretty close to the center of what we're about. Turn to Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul receives this same passion. You know, there's a passion that is passed on from Jesus to Peter in John chapter 21. That same passion is found in the apostles as they are caring for the people of God. 
So you hear that here in John, or Acts chapter 20. Paul is calling what I guess you could say is maybe the first pastor's conference. He's calling for the pastors of Ephesus to come and meet him about 30 miles away from where he's going to be. He calls them all together and he has a, a pastor's conference, if you will. Let's read a little bit on this. Chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every place that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, you're, you're hearing the passion of this man. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, stop. Up until this moment... Paul's presentation at the conference here is all about declarative sentences, right? You know what a declarative sentence is? Just when you're just declaring something, you're just saying what's happened. Here's the facts. Here's who, who I've been. Here's how I lived amongst you. You know that. And now he's about to turn to imperative sentences. Having said all that, this is what you now do in response. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for or to shepherd, it's the Greek word poimen, to shepherd the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Right? Paul is aware there is this downward pull on the church that wants to pull the church into disarray, pull the church into decline. And Paul's passion for his ministry is to pass to those shepherds the calling, the reminder, shepherd the flock, care for the flock. Now, now these, are, these are the leaders who've come over from the city of Ephesus, about 30 miles, as I said, to the north of Miletus, where Paul was just passing through. He didn't want to go back through Ephesus. He just wanted them to come to him so he could have some last moment exchanges with them, sort of fine-tune, update, and encourage these guys in the ministry that they have been called into, the ministry of shepherding the church of God. But there's a lesson to learn here in Ephesus. 
Ephesus is a unique church. It has, it has history like almost no other church does. Uh, there was undoubtedly some believers that were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And, you know, God saves thousands and disperses them. And so some go back to Ephesus and begin to live as believers, unorganized, if you will. Paul eventually is going to make his way to Ephesus. And he's going to help solidify this church and put it together. He's going to end up spending, personally, the Apostle Paul will spend about two to three years there in Ephesus. So they're going to get great attention from the the great leader of the New Testament in the city of Ephesus personally from him. He will leave and then his protege, Timothy, will take over as pastor for several years. But then he will write back to Ephesus what we were going to see in just a moment, the shepherding manual of how to care for the church. And in addition to that, he's going to write two more letters to Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy, that are going to also come to Timothy in Ephesus. So Ephesus has a huge amount of input, care, ministry. The effect of a shepherd caring for them has been immense. But if one takes snapshots of Ephesus as a church, one is going to eventually find them in decline. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Now, if you go back and you read First and Second Timothy, you, you find in that little phrase right there a church that has followed instruction. Because one of the protective measures that Paul gave to Timothy was the testing and qualifying of teachers and the finding out of those who were false teachers and the identifying of that. So... They're actually being commended here. There's an element in which the church in Ephesus is doing some things that that are good. Verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That's good as well. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Or some of your translations say you have abandoned your first love Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, right? What goes up must come down. Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, just an obvious point here. Even a church that had the history and the preparation and the input that Ephesus had is not exempt from the day of decline. And in this regard, the day of decline shows up in a particular way because it's helpful for us to see the day of decline for Ephesus, one that was significant enough for God to correct it and to address it, it wasn't because they were a zero. It's not because there's nothing going on in Ephesus. They've abandoned everything. and There's total disarray there. 
No, they actually get commended for some things that are still going right. But a major issue has been uprooted. And this might be an issue, I don't want to, I may preach something on this at a different time, but what's happened to this church? They're still doing things they should be doing. There still is a sense of duty in their midst. But what seems to be lost is the sense of delight in God in their midst. This is no small thing. For God functions the opposite way in us. If you love me, you will keep my commands. You know, just keeping God's commands and losing your first love is not an option for God. And you and I can get very, very bound up in all the duty that's involved in the Christian life. And you know, the longer you hang around it, the more you become aware of the sense of responsibility and activities and things that we're, I don't want to say just things that we should do, but things that we're actually called to do and encouraged to do. But we're never called to do them in the absence of delight in God, of enjoyment of our first love. And listen, I don't know how you are for this, but I have to fight for this. You know, I'm constantly reading or studying or coming across more information than what's residing here. Right? So I know how some of you probably feel. Great, another book. <laughs> uh, I'm not doing half of what was in the last book I read. Um, you know, so, I mean, I've got parenting books, and I've got how to be a husband books, and I've got how to pray books, and how to study the Bible books, and how to preach books, and how to manage church books. And, and, and all of them just create, if we're not careful, a sense of duty. Right? There's stuff we're supposed to be doing. And we can get very focused on that. And along the way, forget that the greatest calling of any of our lives is to delight in God. To find God to be the object of my affection and attention. So this is a church that's fallen into that kind of decline. Right? Anybody, anybody else in that kind of decline? Right, it's not just decline, you know, we're, you know, we're pretty solid. I mean, we're pretty solid as a church, got this going on, got that going on. You know, be careful. Ephesians, Ephesus had stuff going on while they were missing what mattered the most. See, this threat of decline, it never leaves the church. It walks with us every step of the way as you and I walk on planet Earth. Now, when we get to heaven, there's no friction. Right, there's no more resistance. What goes up just goes up. I have to change that song when we get there. But according to Paul, and Paul was specific here. He said, you know, there's, there's decline pressing on the church, and it's going to come in two forms. Wolves and twisted ideas. The twisting of truth and wolves who bring the twisting of truth. He says that's going to be the elements of decline for the church that you need to be prepared for, shepherds. Now, let me ask you this, because by way of monitoring your own decline, what would, for you, represent wolves in your life? 
If you don't know what a wolf looks like, it's very hard for you to be concerned when one's standing next to you, right? If you've watched enough wolf movies growing up, read enough, um, you know. You should run away from wolves, right? You know this. I was watching this movie with my kids the other night, and there's these two little boys, and they're burying something in the ground, and it's, you know, it's a scary scene, and they're burying this thing, and they hear off in the distance wolves howling, and the older brother turns to the younger brother and goes, it's nothing, it's just a pack of wolves. I'm thinking, that doesn't help me. <laughs> if I'm burying this box, you just made it worse, because I'm knowing pack of wolves eat little boys, you know, out of here. But if you know anything about wolves, you know how to respond to them. But if you don't, so in your own life, what would represent wolves? Now, obviously, we do realize, right, Paul was not anticipating furry animals running amongst the people in Ephesus. Is this what he's talking about? He's not talking about critters. He's talking about people who are wolves. Now, in your life, more than likely, there are people who lead you into decline. Who are they? Right now, names might be coming to mind. You should be considering because wolves are going to show up in the form of people and they're going to lead you into decline. Now, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Spiritually, if you hang out with wolves, you are headed for decline. And the other category Paul highlights is twisted, perverse, distorted ideas. Those who take the truth, take principles of truth and twist them and distort them in such a way that it leads you into decline. Right? So the question next for you would be, well, what kind of ideas and attitudes are in you that are bringing about decline for your life? Right? If I'm going to guard myself from decline, I need to know a little bit about where it comes from. Bad ideas, full of unbelief, full of lies, full of the pursuit of pleasure, but pleasure in the wrong category, where God had a deeper pleasure in mind. I'm settling for some fleshly pleasure in its place. That's a perverted, twisted idea. You don't have to wait for that. That's not the only way to be happy. You'd be just as happy over here. That's twisted. The God of the universe has already spoken about what makes you and me happy. And something else comes along and advertises itself. And what's interesting here for shepherds and for sheep is that some of these things will rise up in your midst, Paul said. From amongst yourselves will come people who say and do those things. So this, this is... For the flock, this is a warning, right? You, each of us as flock members, need to be wise. Right? So, sometimes, listen, I know sometimes counsel from leaders in the church and your covenant group leader and pastors, uh, it just sounds overly conservative. It sounds like a killjoy. It sounds like somebody's letting all the air out of the party. You, you do recognize there is a downward pull on your life. 
There are things in this world that are designed by the God of this world to pull you down. So you have to be wise. You don't get to get let off the wise hook. You have to be wise. Shepherds have to be watchful and warning. That's what Paul's trying to tell these guys to do. Listen, you do realize when watchful warning shepherds show up at your door, they might, depending on where you're at, they might sound like party killers. They might sound less than fun to listen to. But if I'm reading this passage in Acts correctly, the call of shepherds is to be watchful and warning. The call for the sheep is to be wise and receptive so that this flock might actually be protected. Now, decline is not left to chance, right? When we come to Ephesus, we find out that God actually writes an instruction manual to Ephesus. There's there's strategy in God. God designs things a certain way so that his sheep might function a certain way. That his fold might be what he's called it to be. There's design here, and I want to pick up on that today. But I don't know if we all appreciate design. That God intentionally has called things to operate a certain way. God has designed things a certain way. Now, there's that part of my personality, the the engineering part of me, that, that likes that idea. Now, I realize that's not all of us, right? We all don't like designs. Matter of fact, how many of y'all, when you get something new that has instructions in it, how many of y'all don't read the instructions? Let me just see your hands. Right? You know who you are. <laughs> see, on the other hand, I'm the kind of guy who can get really irritated if my kids open the cereal box from the bottom. Not because it's going to fall out, not because it's a violation of design. <laughs> I mean, there was some nerdy engineer who sat down and figured out how to make a flap tuck inside the other one so that you could reseal the box. Oh, we need to honor him. <laughs> Anytime I come across a box that's designed to be closed. See, but, you know, my kids, they just see a box with something in it. There's no instructions. There's no respect for design. There's just get inside of it. But, you know, that's probably how some of us come to church as well, Right? We just get in. We don't read the instructions. We're not trying to see how does the church operate? How does it function? What's its level of importance? How do, how do you play a role in it? How's it? How is it designed to interact with my life? And how am I designed by God to interact with it? We don't, we don't read the instructions on the church. We just show up. Now, when we show up, guess what? We show up with some form of instruction manual that we've written on our own, Right? When you open the box illegally, right? It's illegal, kids, to open the box the way you do. When you do that, it's because you've got your own strategy, right? It's usually about expediency. I just want the cereal in the box. I don't really care about the box. I just want the cereal in it. Okay, great, great. Everybody else gets to eat stale cereal after you're done, okay? So you show up, and you're informed by some kind of value system that's functioning inside of you something about your personality, something about your lifestyle. 
right? You, you get saved and you're a, you're a very busy, successful businessman and you get saved. But busy and successful is what frames your understanding of being involved in the church. Because it's understandable, you see, that you would, you would be involved in a very limited way because you're very busy and successful somewhere else. So you come in with sort of your own framework for, you know, what's it going to look like for people to interact with me? Or you come into the church and, and you're, you're just not really a people person, you know? Kind of more to yourself. Don't like people kind of knowing about your business. Just uncomfortable for you to have to kind of publicly answer for anything. It's never been something you've been comfortable with. So you come into the church and you create a different set of rules as to where you're going to go with people and where you're not going to go with them. You know, yeah, I've heard something about that. What do you, what do you call it? That covenant group? Is that what y'all call it around here? Covenant, you know. It, it doesn't even kind of register with you because I don't do small group stuff. Small group stuff means I might actually have to participate and reveal something. You know, I'm just not comfortable with that. So you create your own means of what it means for you to be involved in the church. And do you understand the church has been designed by God? Before any of us showed up for it, he designed it so that his people would be shepherded and would be led and would be cared for. So we want to discover the design God has created, and then we want to embrace it and walk in it. And it is a matter of great importance. J.I. Packer says, The church of God, that wonderful and sacred mystery, is a subject that stands at the very heart of the Bible. For the church is the object of the redemption which the Bible proclaims. It was to save the church that the Son of God became man and died. God purchased his church at the cost of Christ's blood. It is through the church that God makes known his redeeming wisdom to the hosts of heaven. It is within the church that the individual Christian finds the ministries of grace, the means of growth, and its primary sphere for service. We cannot properly understand the purpose of God. Listen, we cannot properly understand the purpose of God, nor the method of grace, nor the kingdom of Christ, nor the work of the Holy Spirit, nor the meaning of the world of world history without studying the doctrine of the church. There's so much that God has put of a revelation within the context of the church that you and I can't possibly fully understand what God has for any of us individually unless we are joined to the church the way in which God's called us to be. Listen, you know, you, you could be here today feeling like, you know, hey man, what's, what's God calling you to? This is where part of our conversation went with this guy. You know, trying to figure out your individual calling, how you're going to fulfill that, be motivated to be all that you can be. How, for a Christian, how can you even discover that apart from the church? It's like saying, you know, hey, wh- wh- you know, what do you feel called to be, man? What are you going to be in your life? Well, I'm a quarterback. Quarterback, that's who, yeah, that's who I am. Who do you play for? Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't have a team. I don't play for a team. But, but yeah, I, I study about being a quarterback. I watch. I'm learning. I'm picking up stuff. I'm growing every day, man. That's what I'm called to be. Really? Any 
plans on being a part of a team? Well, you know, that works for some people, but <laughs> really, how's that going to work for you? Right? you? How could you possibly understand what it means to answer that call apart from the team? It's your call to be a part of the flock. You're called to be part of the body of Christ. How can you possibly understand the dimensions of your life if that has become a minimal category of small importance and doesn't show up on the radar when for God it's a passion? It's right there near the center of everything he's about right now. And if that's what he's about and that's what motivates God and you and I are seeking to have the center of our universe be about God, then how is it possible that the church doesn't exist somewhere near the center of what we're about. But when you turn to Ephesians, you find some wonderful insights here. Remember Paul, he, he had this passion for his ministry. You remember that? How he said it? If only, if only I might fulfill my ministry. Really, really Paul... How, how are you going to do that, Paul? How do you plan on fulfilling your ministry? Remember, well, he was going to preach the gospel. Okay? We got that. How does Paul go about preaching the gospel? Well, let's just pick up on a little bit of hints here from Paul. Chapter 3 of Ephesians. Verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. And skip down to verse 7. He speaks of the gospel, and he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Can you hold on to that for a moment? I was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Listen to the next thing he says. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Remember Paul's commission, his individual sense of burden? If only I might finish the course of what God's called me to. This ministry of the gospel. And then when Paul talks about it here in Ephesians, a few years later, same group of guys are getting this letter back. Paul is he's following up with them, if you will. He's, he's decided by the Holy Spirit a little more detail on what some of us shared with them in that last pastor's conference is needed. So he sends back this word, and he explains to them yet again the passion he has for his ministry of the gospel, and immediately moves into an explanation of the church. Because it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is now going to be declared. And then just follow with me here, right? Remember, he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Then in verse 14, he's going to talk about why he bows his knee and prays for them. Why does he bow his knee and pray for them? Because they are the church through whom the glory of God is going to be announced to the world. Paul says, for that reason, I bow my knee and I pray for you. And look in verse 
1 of chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, right? Remember, in verse 3, is kind of he started that same kind of thing. It's almost like he interrupted himself and goes back to, Paul, I'm a prisoner again for the Lord, like he wanted to get to this point. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Remember him saying that earlier? Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. Now he's back on that point again in verse 7 of chapter 4. And brief interruption, and he comes back to that thought in verse 11. And he gave. Here's the gift the grace gives. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, the shepherds, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, did you just follow Paul with me for a second? Paul just gets through. He tells these folks in Ephesus he wants to finish what God has given him a passion to finish, even though it may, be, it may take my life. Chains await me. But it doesn't matter because there's a passion in me to finish the course. And when we get to Ephesians and we find out Paul is in prison in chains writing this letter, his passion is for gospel ministry. That's the passion of Paul. But, but he doesn't just say, I got a passion for the gospel. There is a means through which the gospel is going to be pronounced here. And Paul is quick to pull the means alongside of the message, right? If you look in your outline there, John Stott says, the Anglican primates, these would be the men of old in the Anglican church, recommended definition of the gospel includes the essentials to make known by word and deed the love of the crucified and risen Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit so that people will repent believe and receive Christ as their Savior and obediently serve him as their Lord in the fellowship of the church. See, when you, when you listen to Paul talk about what I think, you know, y'all heard of the term full gospel ministry, right? It's in the Bible. It's not just a businessman's lunch. In Romans chapter 15, where Paul talks about this full gospel ministry. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. On some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. 
by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, what's interesting in both of these settings is for Paul, if the gospel is a message, the church is a PA system through which it is spoken. So that when Paul walks to the Ephesian church and he writes to them and he interacts with them, it's almost like Paul picks up the microphone and goes, is this thing on? Right? We don't do that here, but you get what I'm saying? Is this on? Right? Almost what Paul is saying to the church is that. Church. The gospel is to be proclaimed through the church. Is this thing on? You guys on? Because we are the PA system through which the church pronounces the gospel. And when I read Paul here, I find pronouncement both in message and in lifestyle as well. The church makes a public statement about the gospel, both by our words and the life that we live. Stott says the church is supposed to be God's new society, the living embodiment of the gospel, a sign of the kingdom of God, a demonstration of what human community looks like when it comes under his gracious rule. In other words, God's purpose is that the good news of Jesus Christ is set forth visually as well as verbally. That's why Paul starts Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy. I've been praying for you guys. There is this ministry that God has given me in the gospel. It's seeking to be fulfilled. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. J.I. Packer says, today, church growth commonly refers to an increase in the membership roles or attendance. But the New Testament perspective is that God is interested in quality even more than he is interested in quantity. He calls for the evangelizing of the world, but most of all, he is concerned that the functioning of the church, the company of the faithful, should always and everywhere bring glory to him as this supernatural life of fellowship with Christ is displayed, lived out, deepened, and ripened. Now let me close with this last section in Ephesians 4. Okay, out of the flow of the Apostle Paul explaining his ministry of the gospel and bringing into the, it the functioning of the church so that there might be a pronouncement of the gospel, he then lets us in on design. This is him reading the box that says, Open Other End. God's gracious to put those words in the Bible. Right, God has given grace. Paul is one of those receivers of grace. He gave the apostles. Paul was given in his apostle. Paul often would explain that. The prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? Why did God give those gifts? Well, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. There's a huge design statement right there that the church world struggles 
to get in line with. This is like coming into the church and not reading the instructions. Because in a modern American church lifestyle, the thought of those who do the, do the ministry would be the idea that the professionals do the ministry. The leaders of the church do the ministry. And maybe, if you're one of those churches that lives on the edge, maybe there's another layer of leaders in the church who aren't the professionals, but, but they're there, and they do some of the work of building up the body as well. But, you know, that's not what the instructions say. That's like tearing open the bottom of the box. Because that's not what the instructions say. The gifts of leaders are given to equip the saints. So the focus for these leaders is to equip the saints. That's the focus. Even the evangelist is given in here a task of equipping the saints for evangelism. Not just being the one who does the evangelism. And somehow we've misplaced the whole idea that when one looks at the function of these gifts, apostles and prophets, teachers and pastors are given to the world, right? Wrong. That was a Peter question, sorry. They are given to the church. I'm I'm not a pastor to the world. I can't walk out on the street here and call somebody to respond to me because I'm a pastor in their life. I'm not a pastor to them. I'm a pastor in here. These gifts function in here to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who's doing the work of ministry in that sentence? Say it loud. The saints are doing the work of ministry. Did you know that when you came into the church? It's not just the job of the guys with the microphones. Every believer, every believer who is a saint is called to do the work of the ministry to build up the body. See the rest of this verse where it goes. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen, all those things, which is what all of us want in the body of Christ, They don't just happen because somebody stands and preaches a good message. They happen because these who are called, like Paul, equip the saints so that they do the work of ministry, and the outfall of that is maturity and stability and growth and health. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom, this is a great picture, and I'm going to close with this. Eric, you can go ahead and come. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, where, the, the ultimate accent in this sentence, thank God, is the head. Christ is the head. The functional emphasis in this passage is every joint and every part working properly. Every joint 
in every part working properly. It's an interesting picture there because every joint, you know, you got all these joints in you. I got one right here. It's doing much better, thank you. Actually, the the language in the Greek lends itself to actually using the word ligaments. Every joint has ligaments. Some of us tear up our ligaments. But what ligaments do, they're sort of like rubber bands, strong rubber bands that grab the bone on the top and the bone on the bottom and do that to them. They pull them together. You know? Otherwise, you're like one of those skeletons where you press a little button and your whole body kind of goes like that. Um, <laughs> you don't have to pay any extra for most of this. So here's the bottom of your leg, top of your leg. Members that need a joint that works. Another member who grabs this one and grabs that one and pulls them together and makes that knee work. Now, what happens if you come into the body of Christ and you don't have to read the instructions and you're a ligament and you don't know that your job is to grab that person and that person and pull them together in the body of Christ so that the ministry that they have might actually function as well. So listen, some of you here do the work of ministry, you just ran into a category that involves probably not what you'll be doing. Amen, brother, preach it. I'll be preaching next week, right? Uh, No, probably not. (laughs) Well, is there anything else to do in ministry besides that? Uh, Boy, I certainly think so, right? I mean, this passage is rich with relational dynamics that within the church, you and I are called to minister to one another, that our lives are joined and connected. And there's health here when every part is working. See, this great God, God foresaw the day of decline for Ephesus. God wrote a manual said, here, here's how a church stays healthy, how it matures, how it grows. Now listen, now what that means, and Peter mentioned this before. I'm going to close and pray for you in just a moment. That one of the things that we're doing with, you know, the little census form, we'll do it again the next two weeks, is, is trying to bring together the body here is trying to get a better handle on the responsibility to shepherd the sheep that are here. Who is it that's here? Are you here part-time? You're here because God's called you here? You don't have to sort through those things. But if this is where God's called you, then, then you're a member that functions. God's got an assignment. Just like Paul had an assignment, you have an assignment. Just like Paul was getting towards the end of his life and saying, hey, there's problems ahead, but oh, that I just might finish the course I've been given. Are you here this morning with that sense of ownership? I'm here in Lakeview Christian Center that I just might finish the course that God's given me in the body of Christ because I know the church is near to the center of God's important activity. Listen, this is a message for every one of us, so there'll be no altar call this morning. The altar comes to you. And the question for you is, are are you 
functioning in the body. And listen, I'll cover probably not next week, but the next week after that. It ain't always uh, fun to function in the body, okay? I know that. I know there's some here saying, hey, I tried to function. I got burned. It didn't work. This happened or that happened. Um, I know. there's There's not a plan B, though. You don't get to open the box from the other end because you didn't like the way it came out when you opened it from the top. There's not a plan B. There's grace from God for you and I to walk together in the only plan that's there, even though, even though we're going to bump and scar along the way. But what we do need to do is read the instructions. Say, okay, God, this is how you've designed the body. I want to get in. Let's stand up together. is an amazing day of grace for us to be standing in a building having a conversation about what it means to be part of your body. Lord, we remember that just a short while ago we were enemies of yours. We were apart from you and we were like all the rest children of wrath, rightly deserving for our sin to be visited upon us by your judgment. But yet here we are today, Lord, forgiven, our sins wiped clean, and a new day has dawned in our lives, a new day filled with purpose that before, Lord, we never would have given a thought near to your heart, passionate are you about your church, your flock. Lord, give us not just these instructions, but give us a passion for these instructions. God, give us, like Paul had, an intensity that says, no matter what awaits me, chains or imprisonment, I must, I must fulfill what God has called me to fulfill. God, awaken your church. Lord, I I pray for each one of us. Lord, those who call Lakeview Christian Center home. Lord, those who are called somewhere else. Lord, give us functional ministry in the body in the few days, Lord, the few days that we have here. And Lord, may there be in us an awakened passion like yours to see your people cared for, shepherded, and fulfilling your plan that your glory might be seen through the church, pronounced even to the heavenly hosts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Happy Mother's Day again.